Hello and welcome to Hashtag Human Podcast, the podcast where we look at all the things that can come, can come up for us on our road to success. Those human tendencies that have us feeling like we are not perfect, we are not exactly the way we should be. And today I have a very special guest I'll be chatting to, the amazing Tash Corbin. Tash is a specialist in consent-driven marketing and helps women and non-binary people to build scalable, profitable businesses online. She's a host of the Heart Centered Business Conference, facilitates the 35,000 member strong heart centered soul driven entrepreneur community, and she helps hundreds of entrepreneurs to create a business and marketing strategy that deeply aligns to their values through her courses and mentoring. I'm one of Tasha's mentors. I'm in her takeoff program. I've actually been following her for probably about four years before that <laughs> because she just has such a wealth of knowledge that she shares with everyone. So hello, Tash. Hello, Laura. Thank you so much for having me on Hashtag Human. I'm so excited. So um, to get started, how about, would you mind introducing yourself to those listening today? Yeah, sure. So as you said, I specialize in consent-driven marketing and lean business principles. Uh, but I think it would be great to share like where my business has come from. So I actually, before I had a business, I worked in corporate consulting, helping large scale organizations uh, and some smaller organizations with executive coaching, marketing plans, business planning, growth strategies, all sorts of things. And uh, I wanted to leave that because there were two things that happened. One, I was working on an amazing government project to help to um, empower Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to own their own homes and undo some of the legal challenges around that created by Native Title. And um, it was such an amazing project. There was so much community consultation that was like really deep in working on fixing a problem the government had created when they thought they were fixing another problem. And the um, Queensland government changed from a Labor government to a Liberal government. The whole thing was cancelled in one go. Like all the money spent so far, like it was just done. No, we're not doing that anymore. And then another one, another project that I then was put on to was helping oil and gas companies rape and pillage the earth. And I was like, this is so out of values alignment with me now. I just cannot be in this space anymore. The workplace culture was toxic. I'm going to start my own business. And so I thought I was going to go into career coaching or corporate consulting or something along those lines. And after the first couple of weeks of having some conversations with people and, you know, getting into these conversations about workplace bullying and toxic patriarchal structures. So I left this world. I don't want to dive straight back into it as a business owner. And so I remember my partner, David, came home one day and I said to him, I've nailed it. I know exactly what I want to do. Who needs my business skills the most? Artists. I am going to teach business skills and business growth to artists. And I must say, I've never before or after that day, heard his voice be more high-pitched. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know that whole like, what? <laughs> but he trusted me. And so I started talking. And, and so many people said to me, artists have no money. Starving artist syndrome. Like, you are diving into starting a business, helping people who will never pay you. And what my experience was that when I started talking about 
making art sales on social media, how to grow a following, how to share your artistic process, how, you know, all of these sorts of things. The artists in my life are saying, no one's ever taught us business skills before. We've been completely ignored for so long because people assume artists just do it for the love and the artistic integrity and they're not in it for the money. They're, you know, their art's worth more when they're dead. So there's no business model in that. Um, and so for the first probably six months of my business, I was teaching artists how to get more followers and make more sales on social media. And then by demand, I sort of crept out. So then it was people who wanted to publish a book, right? It was a creative project, but it wasn't necessarily artwork. Um, then I had people who wanted to sell digital templates or um, digital artwork or, um, you know, things on Etsy, those sorts of things. And then it was, well, I have a very creative service. I want to do graphic design services. I want to do websites, right? So it kind of grew quite organically from there. And about six months into my business, I came to a fork in the road because some of my artist clients were asking me questions about how do I balance artistic integrity with commercial viability? How do I choose whether I create art that I think is aligned with what I need to be putting in the world and what people will buy? And I didn't know the answer. I didn't, I'm not an artist. I didn't know how to answer that question, right? I didn't have that um, lived experience as an artist to provide any kind of meaningful mentoring on that. I could ask questions and I could extract some things out of them, but I realized at that point in time, there are people out here now who are better equipped to mentor artists in that space. And so I shifted my business to focus on helping people selling their services. And uh, I had a few people that I knew of at that time who were artist mentors and were business mentors for artists. I have met them through me going out there and starting to do this. And so I just told all my artists, you know, if, if artistic integrity versus commercial viability is a conflict that's happening inside you, go and work with these people instead. And then I found you as well, Laura, and now you're helping artists as well. Um, so now I focus on helping people who sell services, who sell, um, who then go into selling courses and memberships and masterminds and those sorts of things, but it's more the service-based business. But I definitely started in the more creative artistic space. But yeah, as I said, I got to that fork in the road and I was like, I'm not equipped to have this conversation. And it's really funny because as an artist, I know that in my own journey, when I started to actually make money from my art was when I started to take commission pieces and um, mm. especially ones that were by government you know where they were yeah. looking to get artworks for a, for a project they were running or for a new uh, publication that they wanted yes. and they wanted an Aboriginal artist and that threw up a whole lot of other things because oh um, yeah you know, I, I, I did know I'd been really lucky early in my career to work under um, uh, Terry Jenke, who is an amazing um, Aboriginal uh, lawyer, mm -hmm. and she used to run workshops on copyright and making sure you retain it, that kind of thing. But um, in so many of those contracts that they were just not right, they they wanted to take intellectual property, which yeah. could never sign away. <laughs> so, you know, that, but it is like they're big money for an artist, like getting $1,000, $5,000 for an artwork. Yeah. That's massive. But there is, there's that internal, oh, yeah. am I selling my soul here? <laughs> 
especially to whom am I selling it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So have you always been passionate about consent-based marketing? Um, I didn't have words to express it at the time, but I do remember even when I worked in consulting and then especially starting my business, there were certain sales tactics and strategies that were used on me or that I was being taught to use that felt wrong. They just felt wrong. And there would be times where I couldn't articulate to my mentor why I didn't want to have a fake countdown timer. Right? I couldn't articulate what, like exactly why it was making me feel so uncomfortable, but I just knew I didn't want to do it. And so um, I've always been passionate about treating people well, regardless of whether they buy from you or not. But I can't say I was always passionate about consent-driven sales because at the time, no one else was having these conversations. And I like... Consent-driven sales, I don't know that anyone else uses that term. Like that's sort of how I describe what's going on. And I found that terminology um, actually when the Me Too movement really took off and there was these conversations about consent and all of the things, all of the behaviours around bypassing consent and gaslighting and, you know, negging and those sorts of things. And I was like... This is all the stuff that happens in sales and marketing that I find abhorrent and I refuse to do. And so, so, yeah. there's so many things that um, are just taught as normal. Yeah. Um, my shopping cart, I can retain everyone's email that shops through my shopping cart. And there is a little box that they can tick to say whether or not I market to them. Yeah. But I still have all of the emails. And I know a whole lot of people who use the same shopping cart who just email. Yeah, anyone yeah. who's emailed that and yeah. that's it's not even it's against the law <laughs> yes it is and when it comes to consent driven marketing I think there are stages right and that was always the um the response I would get whenever I pushed back to a mentor and said hang on a minute isn't that like that they didn't agree to me doing that isn't that a bit gross and they would say it's not illegal Right? That was like their standard was, oh, it's not illegal. Or it's not illegal if you do it in other countries, but it would be illegal if you were based in the States and you were doing it. So you can get away with it, right? It's like, I'm not on this planet to like skirt the law, right? As a, a, pre, you know, a very uh, nerdy student from when I was in pr- first year of primary school, I'm six foot two. I was too tall for the desks in my class. So I had to sit at the teacher's desk. So little teacher's pet, right? Like definitely want, don't want to even come close to skirting the barriers of the law. But there's, a, there's the boundary of like, is it legal? And some people still teach illegal strategy, like my gosh, anyway, is it legal? But then there's like, is it aligned with values? Is it responsible? Is it taking responsibility for ensuring that you proactively let people know what you are doing? And then there's also like that next level, which is where is it consent driven? Is it consent driven? Because some strategies, they're not even as open as I didn't get permission to email them, but I'm going to email them. They are pervasive. And there are some strategies that at first I didn't recognize them as being toxic or non-consent driven, 
but they something fell off. And it was only then when I kind of dug into it that I realized that it was actually completely toxic. Like mm. uh, I'll give a couple of examples because, and I want to say before we start, hashtag human, I've got sucked into doing these things because I didn't realize. I want everyone to get like a giant permission slip and a big forgiveness if you are doing these at the moment because we don't know what we don't know. But now that you know, it's time to make a conscious choice. It's I'm the kind of person where once I know I can't, I can't not do it, right? Like it's like, well, I've got to fix this. Um, so it's about bringing it to the surface. So here are a couple of things that you might have been taught that actually it's not consent driven because it's bypassing consent or it's using psychological trickery and tactics to get people to take an action that they otherwise wouldn't take or they did not have informed consent about taking. So one of them is you may have been to a webinar or particularly in live events before where as the day is starting to wrap up and they're moving into their sales pitch, they'll start to say, by now you're probably thinking da da da. By now you might be by now, right? That is actually a brain rewiring strategy that it's not B-Y now, it's B-U-Y, right? By now. They're saying to you over and over again before they pitch you a product, buy now, buy now, buy now, buy now, right? They're literally trying to hypnotize you into buying something. Now, you may have been taught this as a way to summarize a webinar and and bridge your way to the sale without even realizing the origins of where that has come from. But now that you know, you get to choose whether you use it or not. Mm -hmm. Another one is two-choice sectioning. So this is where you get to the end of a webinar in particular. We see a lot of this in webinars, which is why a lot of people hate webinars. The problem is not webinars. It's the way you're doing webinars. But anyway, we could talk about that another time where it says you've got two choices. You can struggle along on your own and fail or do it the hard way. Or you can pay me this amount of money and everything will work out and everything will be easier. And what it's doing is it's a a neuro-linguistic programming device that gets you thinking about Two choices, two choices. But actually, that's gaslighting because there's not two choices. There's one. There's one because no one wants to fail. No yeah. one wants to. Yeah. And, and also, there's actually 40 choices, right? I can choose not to buy from you, but buy from someone else and get a great result. I can choose not to buy from you, but go and research this like crazy on YouTube and figure it out for myself and everything works out okay. I can choose not to buy from you and still succeed, right? The two choice theory, what it's doing is it's linking buying with success and not buying with failure. But that's not the only options. You can buy and fail and you cannot buy and succeed. And so it's important when we are learning marketing strategies that we dissect why am I being asked or taught to do this as part of the sales process? Another one I'm going to use an example of, and I think everyone's going to need some forgiveness on this because it's quite common, is when someone, uh, there's two actually, when someone opts in for something, sending them like dozens of emails, like email after email after email, 
with the mindset of, well, if they opt out and unsubscribe, they weren't my ideal client. If they don't buy within the first 30 days, they're never going to buy ever. That is not true. And actually, when I signed up for your free webinar, you didn't say, I'm going to send you six emails a day for the next 10 days. You said you're going to subscribe to my mailing list and you'll get my newsletter and offers from time to time. And if we apply the reasonable person test to from time to time, that does not equate to multiple emails in one day. It just doesn't. And so that's one of them. But then the other one is when someone tries to unsubscribe from your list saying, oh, did I do something wrong? Have you seen one of these unsubscribe things, Laura? Like yes, you I go have. to the unsubscribe, it's like, oh, we're so sorry to see you go. Was it something that we did? Was it something that we said? Why is it that you want to go? Oh, please. I once tried to unsubscribe from a dog food subscription services sales emails and it said, don't you love Munchkin anymore? And I was like, I beg your pardon. Wow. wow. <laughs> Munchkin is my dog's name. Like, what if I unsubscribe because she died? Like, <laughs> come on, right? Like, and what it's doing, it's actually like in, it, it, you know, think about the the relationship. We won't go there in terms of consent relationships and some of the, the big trauma mm. stuff. But like, think about it when you're like, you're chatting to someone on Tinder. I've never used Tinder. But like, if you're chatting someone on Tinder and they're like, you know what? I'm not really feeling it. And then it's like the guilt laden. Oh, what did I do? What did I say? You know, that almost like that, like, Oh, you're making me feel yucky, right? And particularly for women and people from marginalized communities, we have been taught that straight white men's feelings are far more important than our own, that other people's feelings and emotions are primary and ours are secondary. And to the point where, like how many of us have you know, said yes to helping someone out when we are in dire straits and everything's going wrong, but because being a good person is for us connected with putting other people's needs before ours, not for men, that they haven't been trained that, no. but we have been trained that. And so it's using these different strategies. There's some really tangible examples of using strategies that play into a psychological a tool or a, a form of trickery manipulation to get people to take an action that you want them to take. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, and with the no, with the emails, um, one of the things that I know a lot of um, my audience already struggle with is being able to say no without an excuse. Yeah. Just no, because it's a no. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's just no. So yeah. when you have to then try and unsubscribe and sometimes it takes you to four different pages. Oh yeah. You, or, and you have, what's your reason? It's like, I don't want yep. to give you a reason. I just want yep. it to be a no. <laughs> I just want to unsubscribe. Even for paid subscriptions. Okay, so I am aware of several tech platforms, paid subscriptions, where when you try to cancel your payment, you have to book a call to speak with someone about why. Like you can't just click a button and say, I don't want, to, I don't want this anymore. You actually have to go through a conversation with a human being and the discomfort of having that horrible conversation is enough to ward people and be like, oh, I don't have the emotional bandwidth to sit and explain my, to myself to someone this month. I'll do it next month. And so they get to keep taking your money. Like this is money. This isn't just an email address. They get to keep taking your money because they've made the process of cancelling 
so arduous, right? They, they can dress it up as much as they, oh, it's simple. It's just a five-minute conversation. We just need to understand why and make sure that we've, you know, some, some companies have been saying, oh, it's just because we need to make sure that it does stop the billing cycle. You know, sometimes the automated one doesn't work. It's absolute BS. It's absolute BS. If their automated system doesn't work and doesn't stop taking payments, that system that they're using is breaking the law and they would be able to actually sue that comp- that that technology platform, right? Like I'm, I've rang before though to cancel services, which is why when you brought that up, I was laughing. Is I've rang up and cancelled services for that reason. We need to have a conversation so that we can make yep. sure it doesn't. And the money comes out the next. And then month. It's, they still <laughs> even do it, yeah, right. So it's like, well, you, your excuse is you have to do it so that you make sure it works, but then it doesn't work. Yeah. So there's lots of these and. and Again, we've come to a point in the online business world where people have the people who've designed these strategies have done so in most cases full well knowing exactly what they're doing. But then they teach it to someone who teaches it to someone who teaches it to someone who teaches it to someone. And we're now at this point where people have lost touch with the reasons why these strategies are being taught. And they are like, it gets dressed up. I've been part of programs where they say, we use high connection, human to human sales strategies. We don't teach manipulation. We don't teach trickery. We don't teach, you know, these tactics. And then you get in and they are teaching those tactics. They don't even realize that they're teaching those tactics because they were just t- they were just told by their mentor to do that, mm. and then they've done it, and they've never once questioned the authenticity and the consent, the underlying consent that uh, as to whether they're allowed to do that or not, or whether that is values aligned to do that or not. And so, yeah, it becomes a really powerful conversation, and that's why I give the permission slip and the forgiveness note beforehand because for so many people, they're like. <gasps> A mentor that I have that I love and respect did it to me. And so I did it to my list. A mentor that I love and respect taught me this. And so I've been doing it, right? And it's like, it's so hard. And it can be a bit of a wake up call, but like confronting to be realize, oh my gosh, I have been using strategy. So again, if you didn't hear it the first time, total forgiveness here, right? It's It's not about judgment. It's not about making people feel bad for doing this. It's about bringing it to your awareness so you can make a conscious choice now. Do I want to continue using strategies like this or do I want to use something that's more driven by consent? And that brings me to my next question, which is now that you know about consent-based marketing and you're very active with using it within your own business, how has that helped you with growing your business? Like what have been the benefits of that approach for you? Okay, so... One, I have much higher list retention rates than industry averages. So I have done launch training before and courses where they talk about expecting 20% of your leads to unsubscribe before the launch ends, expecting 15% of your leads to unsubscribe within the first 10 days, right? They've got these like numbers, like don't freak out if you get 20% of people unsubscribe because that's just normal. And my unsubscribe rate is under 1%, right? So I keep people on my mailing list longer. People are more likely to buy from me. The lifespan of a customer is far longer we start our relationship from a space of trust and those relationships are much, much stronger 
as I said, much more long lasting. People are more likely to jump in and buy something when I first launch it because they know they can trust me. But more, and, and my conversion rates are better. Yeah. All right. So all these people saying send 17 emails in five days. People only have, you know, four days to buy, you know, jam them in real tight like sardines, send all of these emails um, and you'll get better conversion rates. That when, that when I say, well, what is the conversion rate? That would say things like 2%, two and a half percent. And my conversion rate from my fast money challenge, my um, client attraction challenge was 11 and a half percent. Yeah. My conversion rate from my, my not last webinar, but the one before was seven and a half percent, right? So I actually make more sales by sending less emails. Mm-hmm. I make more sales by not using the psychological tools and trickery and tactics. But more than that, because everything I do in my business, I feel proud of, I feel comfortable with, and I feel is deeply aligned to my values and my morals, I show up more. I'm more consistent. I have less mindset wobbles about going into a launch or sending an email or writing a sales page or any of those sorts of things And it's an energetic match. I am an energetic match for my marketing. And how many people are like, I'm a deep energetic match for my work, but marketing feels like it's over here. Like, yeah. So if you you were just um, talking to people who are just starting out and maybe just started making sales and are looking at marketing themselves, say on social media or building a list, they're, they're just getting started. What advice would you give them? about yeah. that process yeah so number one is to go like accept that learning marketing and sales is a non-negotiable skill regardless of whether you want to be you know a world famous artist you want to sell things on etsy you want to write a book you want to sell an oracle deck learning sales and marketing yourself is a non-negotiable skill. And Laura, we've had a conversation about this, about why people jump in with publishers, right? Because they think they'll do the marketing bit. And all I have yeah. to do is make the product. But publishers aren't really good at marketing the way that they tell you they're good at marketing when they sign you up to that contract that takes all your IP away, right? <laughs> so um, uh, first and foremost, if you accept that this is a skill you're going to need to build, you stop what I see people do for so many years when they're first starting out, which is like, if I could just get someone else to sell it for me, everything would be okay. If I could just get someone else to shout out for me, everything would be okay. If, if I could just get my book on Oprah's book cub list, everything would be okay, right? I, if I could just somehow not market and focus on serving or creating, then everything would be okay. Trying to exist in that world is like, you know, trying to find the, the unicorns, yeah? It's, it's very rare, that you will be have a successful, consistent, growing, thriving business without you learning how to market and make sales. Yes, you can outsource. Once you know how to get it working, you can outsource some things. You can have agents. You can you know, participate in galleries, all of those sorts of things. Absolutely. But the first step to making it feel easier and better and to get that fast early growth is to accept, you know what? I'm going to learn sales and marketing. The second step is to recognize that not all sales and marketing is equal. So for a lot of people, the reason why they don't want to learn sales and marketing, they're resistant to it, is because they conflate and they believe that all marketing is gross marketing. 
all sales is yucky sales. And I am here as like the screaming from the rooftops example to say, like at the moment, I am in a marketing launch. It's something that I do each year called Tashmas. And it is the job of Tashmas is to make sales. It's a sales exercise. It's a marketing exercise. But what I do is I turn up and I do a free training every day and I have conversations with amazing people online, right? And I'm not pushing people through some funnel that makes them feel gross. I'm not sending thousands of emails. I'm not annoying people. I'm not forcing people to do anything. I'm not like none of that. And sales and marketing is a joy for me because I've learned how to sell and market in alignment with my values and in alignment with my strengths. I love talking, can you tell, on video, on camera, on podcasts. I love having conversations with people. I shine in an interview. I shine in conversations. So I've created a marketing and sales process that is completely steeped in me showing up and talking and shining and and giving the gift of the gab out there. Now, there are clients that I have where they make the most gorgeous things. And when they post them online, people are like, oh my gosh, that is so beautiful. I love it so much. And they've found ways. They like I, I'm thinking of one person in particular. She's an amazing graphic designer, amazing artist. She helps people with um, like artworks for their Oracle cards and book covers and all sorts of things. You would have never seen her face. You mm-hmm. would have never heard her voice, right? You, might, you would see her face and hear her voice when you jump on to have a chat with her about getting her to work with you. But on her social media, what you see is her work and her words. I think I even know. Is it Stephanie? Is it, is, it is Stephanie. Yeah, right. So yeah. Um, even just the way I described her, right? Like, you know. And so Stephanie doesn't like being on camera. She doesn't like talking. She's, she's like the opposite personality type to me. Has a thriving business. Has a thriving business. But she's an epic saleswoman. She's an mm-hmm. epic marketer. She's not going around saying, I'll just show my art. I'll just show my work. She's learning and trying different marketing and sales strategies that are in her wheelhouse. Yes. Yeah. That's what she's doing. She knows that when she goes online and, and shares a book cover of someone else's and promotes their book launch and says, look at this book, look at this book, is it amazing? that more people will buy the book and more people will ask the author, who did your book cover? Yeah. Yeah. She knows. And so that's what she does. She knows that when she shares it and, and says, like, it was, a, it was an honour and a privilege to make a cover for such a powerful book, people go, you did that cover? Right? She knows how to speak about her work. She knows how to speak about her clients. She knows how to showcase her graphic design skills in a way that creates interest and intrigue and it makes sales. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And, and supporting other people like that, I think, I know that for myself has been a really big part of my own business growth is like not being afraid to, you know, to show other people who are doing a good job on, yeah. on your own platforms because mm-hmm. like we should be celebrating them. They're doing yeah. great. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to share um, a little thing. When I first started following you, Tash, I went to, I think, a five-day challenge like years ago <laughs> and um, I was still following you, following you, and I was telling myself the whole time, I don't need to market. I don't need to market. I'll just sell my decks. I will be fine. I don't need to market. And then you had, uh, I don't know what it is, but it's like 
you were like, let's have a cheeky 5K month. Which yes. like, let's do a cheeky 5K month. And I was like, oh, yes, please. Sounds great. And the very first live was you've got to email your list. And I didn't have a list. I'd never started an email list. And yeah. I was like, oh, wow, I just deleted like 500 people from my MailChimp that I've been collecting over years that I'd never once sent a newsletter to. <laughs> And so I was like, oh, okay, I see what the list does now. It's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be, like you say, this spammy thing where I'm sending people heaps of emails, buy my stuff, buy my stuff. It's like a way of nurturing your audience and saying like, you know, here's some more valuable content. Like, you know, have you planned for the year? Have you, do you know how to journal? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even as someone who has your reading cards, right? Like I'm hungry for your social content on like what your interpretation of those cards is or what that means for what you're doing at the moment, right? Like when we join your list, when we buy your stuff, are you treating us with the assumption that we don't want to hear from you again, you annoy us? Or are you treating us with the, well, maybe they might be interested in my thoughts about this or they want to hear more, even though they've already bought something or they've signed up for a freebie and they haven't bought something. Like, You've got to remember there are people out there who've signed up to your list and we don't sign up out of pity. Yeah. We don't we don't buy your stuff to do you a favor. Yeah. Right? We buy your stuff, we sign up to your mailing list because we think it's going to be helpful. Because we want what you've got to say to be in our inboxes. And so many people that I work with, you know, that's the biggest shift we need to make. And because again, like women in marginalized communities, be seen and not heard, don't but talk, don't take on a space, yeah. you're not worthy, right? Just you, your job is to be behind the scenes looking after others. Your job is to put me in the spotlight. And it's it 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 flows, has a flow-on effect to then it might not be conscious, but it has a flow-on effect to then how much space do we think we're allowed to take up? How do we perceive that others will you know, accept us? So something that I talk about quite a lot in my business is as a child, whenever I had a huge achievement or was really good at something, I lost friends, right? So pumping up my own tires or feeling proud of getting top of my school or feeling proud of being you know, selected as the shooter for my netball team, If I wasn't humble and apologetic for that success, my friends would drop me. So then when it comes to sending emails out to my mailing list, little Tash was trying to keep me safe. She's like, don't big note yourself, right? Don't talk yourself up. Don't know. Because if you do, everyone's going to run away and unsubscribe or they're going to talk about you behind your back or they're going to hate on you secretly or they're going to hate on you up uh, not so secretly and so there's a lot of it's not just about the strategy there's a lot of mindset work that we need to do around you know sometimes just making our inner child feel safe making our little self you know I always talk about like little Tash and right at the moment I'm selling a coloring book and little Tash is very stoked with me right now I'm very happy about that but you know we do need to remember that this isn't just a right in the moment decision-making process logic only thing there's emotion tied up with sending out an email to your mailing list there's emotion tied up with showing up on social media and showing your face 
in sharing your voice, in saying something that maybe is not everyone's cup of tea. You know, how many times have we been told, don't talk about politics at the table, don't talk about certain topics in certain company, you know, just because you disagree with someone's beliefs about, um, you know, whether women deserve to be paid equally for equal work doesn't mean that that's appropriate for you to talk about that with your dodgy old uncle who's still living in the 50s, right? Like we've been t- we've been trained to be good little girls yes. um, and not speak up about these things and not say things that might be confronting and not, you know, and then like think about at, like for the artists who are listening along and then you go and create artwork that's confrontational because you haven't had that outlet in the in the in the social world right so then there are things you need to say and things you need to express and the only safe space to express them is in your artwork but then you've got to make that artwork public you've got to go and tell people about what's behind that you know I've had that conversation with a lot of artists she's like well I don't want to share the story of why I made that weird piece of artwork because it's not to everyone's taste and it's like this was the only way I was able to express a really traumatic thing that happened to me. And that's where that artwork was born from. And if I talk about that, people won't buy it. Right. (laughs) And I really, and I really want to, I really want to sell it. So like, can I just not tell them anything about it that might actually endear them to it and give them an actual reason to buy it? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And just letting go of that. Like if I share my story, if I talk about something uncomfortable, everyone's going to run away and talk about me behind my back or, you know, whatever your experience might be. I had a lot of talking behind my back. So that's one that I'm particularly like "Ah," about. And it's like, even when I started my business, if I heard about people forming little like masterminds or other groups, whatever, I had to be in all of them just in case people were talking about me behind my back, right? Like, like, "Ah." So that was also one I had to let go of because there are going to be people that talk about me behind my back. But my desire to show up, grow my business, help other people grow their businesses is far higher than my fear of being spoken about behind my back now. But that took time. That took practice. That took work. And that took showing up and paying attention to the fears when I did. That took practicing those marks, sending the email, even though I felt like I shouldn't, and then sitting and journaling on why I was so worried about sending it. What I was afraid of and so you know we've just gone from like really high energy uh, to this like really intense moment here but for anyone listening along I I also want them to understand that like as a hashtag human this is all a normal part of our experience and it's something that we need to be kind with ourselves about right how many people are out there like listening to this guy like oh I'm so silly I didn't do marketing and they're like slapping themselves on the wrist and you know oh come on just get over it and you're trying to bully your way out of this but actually for a lot of people I find that their pathway to reconciling their relationship with sales and marketing and showing up online and sharing their story is a pathway of forgiveness and kindness it's not a pathway of bullying yourself there and that probably takes me perfectly into the next question which is what has been your biggest challenge in following your own dreams and those big goals <laughs> biggest challenge biggest. I, I would say my biggest challenge is me because that just covers everything um I think in the early stages my biggest challenge was I had a big fear of people seeing me try to start a business 
I was very much, I was brought up with a, like, if you make mistakes, it's embarrassing. Like, don't, if you, if you don't know the answer to something, it's embarrassing. There were a few times, like, because I was a very smart child and I read a lot of books Sometimes my first introduction to words was in written form and I didn't know how to say them properly. And so if I just said a word wrong and like, what are you talking about? You know, like it it was embarrassing. Like you think it's said like that, but like I was rewarded for my smartness, but then embarrassed for my, uh, I was book smart, not street smart type thing. So um, I remember when I first started my business, if I did like a post on social media and it didn't get some likes straight away, I'd delete it. If I asked a question and people didn't answer it, I would delete it because I didn't want anyone to see me try and start a business or Mm. be embarrassed by failure or mistakes. I just wanted to just like be like, I've started a business. Oh, look, it's successful. I've started a business and, and now I'm super successful. Like, like that's ever the journey. But that was like deep down what I needed to feel safe. And so I had to do a lot of work in those initial stages of my business about allowing myself to make mistakes publicly, about looking forward to mistakes. And so I had this sort of mindset mantra of, I'm going to go out and make the mistakes as quickly as I can because the mistakes are how I learn. And and now it's so funny because I say online all the time, let me make mistakes so you don't have to. I share every mistake I make in my business, every embarrassment, every lesson gets turned into a podcast, gets turned into a Facebook Live. Like I'm not only making mistakes, I'm airing them for other people to make it okay for them to make mistakes. You know, like I had to heal that in myself and be okay with that in myself. And then I needed to bring a bunch of other people with me to show them it's actually easier when you stop trying to keep your mistakes a secret, when you stop trying to have this perfectly manicured and polished um, presentation of yourself online, when you get to show up and be hashtag human, right, on this podcast, that is when the biggest results, the biggest leaps, the biggest um, connection happens with your audience and therefore creates that amazing momentum and growth. So in the early stages, it was about like the biggest challenge I had was being okay with trying publicly, with practicing publicly. I was the kind of kid who I would never sing a song in front of my friends until I'd been at home and played it over and over on the tape deck and learned every word so that I wouldn't get a word wrong in front of an audience, right? Like that level of I cannot be seen to be making mistakes because it's embarrassing. And so, yeah, that was definitely a big one for me to overcome. These days... Um, my biggest challenge with with growing my business and all those sort of things is um, the I have to do everything, work hard type thing that just keeps rearing its head over and over again, right? If you don't work hard, you haven't earned it. You have to work hard for it to be worthwhile, you know, all of those sorts of Mm. pieces and just really up-leveling my comfort with ease. I've worked under 20 hours a week in my business for years now and still find myself in some of those downtimes thinking, oh, what could I do? You know, oh, maybe yeah. I should do business. Or I create something and it sells really easily and then I go and break it because <laughs> that was too easy, yeah? Or 
I um, come up with this really beautiful, easy launch plan. And then I go and throw hand grenades at my team of, oh, no, this idea. Oh, no, this. Let's do this at the last minute. Let's add this at the last minute. When it would have been far more successful overall if I just followed the easy plan. And again, I make those mistakes so other people don't have to and they can learn from my mistakes doing those things. I'm very public with and, and open with sharing those as I go. Um, and yeah, I've, I've really struggled with like hiring team members and letting go of things and letting them take, you know, charge of things. And, and so many times I'll, I find myself saying, oh, well, that's a really hard and yucky thing to do. So I'll do it. Like for some reason, as the CEO owner of this business, I'm the one who has to do all the yucky parts of the business. I can't expect anyone else to do it, even Mm -hmm. knowing you're paying them. I'm paying them. And the things that I find yucky, my team find fabulous, right? The things that are just like copy paste these things or it's monotonous or whatever. I have, I've hired team members who love repetitive tasks, but because I find them yucky, I don't give them to them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, I'm still, I'm far better than I was, but I can see for the next big growth phase in my business, that comfort with a whole nother level of ease, financial ease, time ease, spaciousness, the type of work that I do, that is coming, you know, that's my next big learning curve and I'm in the midst of it now. Yeah. So um, I think I've only got about two or three questions left. So do you consider yourself successful? And if not, what would success look like for you? Oh, that's so that's such a big question. Oh my gosh. Because there, like I had a surgery in July last year and I've been away from my business for like eight months and really just I, like when I say less than 20 hours, I was probably doing less than three hours a week for a very long time in my business. And the fact that I didn't have to apply for sick leave or anything like, that, like I felt so fancy and so successful. So I always think like success for me is like this sliding scale. Like I feel more successful now than when I was working in a job but I know there's a lot more to go, right? Mm-hmm. There are things that I want to do. There are impacts that I want to have. There is, there's goals that I want to achieve that I'm not there yet. But also I am someone who as a type A, A-plus student, like it can sometimes take a lot for me to stop and acknowledge the success I have achieved. Like we're doing this interview three days before my 40th birthday. And I had a goal of having a million dollar year in my business before my 35th birthday. And I still haven't got there. Right. So I set big measures for myself in terms of goals and success and all of those sorts of things. Um, But in not achieving those goals, I'm still achieved so much and so for me, the biggest measures of success that I have are that deep values alignment. If I'm showing up and doing work in the world that I know is a value that is helping people and in doing so, I'm not causing environmental destruction, socio, you know, social harm, manipulating people, leaving people feeling you know, that they're never going to be successful because they couldn't afford to spend $2,500 away with me, you know, all that sort of stuff. If I'm showing up in my gorgeous heart-centered self, that to me feels like that's the purest form of my success. And I also then have 
those other measures of success. If I'm a good friend, a good partner, a good dog mama, that feels really successful, a good sister, you know, like, and my version of good is that I love hard on them, right? Like my love language is quality time and words of affirmation and I do that so well, you know, like that's definitely a big measure of success for me. And then I have like the external measures of success and the trappings of success. I really want to buy a giant beach house, right? And being someone who wants to buy a giant beach house and change the world for the better is not mutually exclusive. Mm. And I think, you know, that's a big thing for a lot of people when it comes to setting income goals or wanting to go for those big like external trappings of success is there's a feeling of guilt like I can't have a five-bedroom mansion when other people can't even pay their rent on a one-bedroom apartment like that's not fair but actually I know that by me doing that and having that and achieving that I take people with me Hmm. and I can't take everyone but I can take a lot of people with me and the more money I have the more people I can help and not just through my business. I am big into philanthropy. There are some big changes that I want to make in the world. I'm currently working on increasing Indigenous representation in netball in Australia and the fact that I've been picked and selected to volunteer. Like I just was like through myself at them. I was like, please let me help. And they're like, oh, my gosh, we need someone like you. But I feel like so privileged and humbled to be able to work on that because something I'm really passionate about um and so all you know all of those things if I if my business wasn't making enough money I wouldn't have the time to jump into that project you know what I mean like yeah totally we need like all of us need to reconcile this thing of like actually the more money you have the more you can get help with the stuff that doesn't light you up so you can focus your time and energy on the stuff that does. And for most of us, the stuff that lights us up is the stuff where we're helping people, where Mm. we're being of service, where we're changing the world for the better, when we're getting behind social causes. Like research has shown that when women have wealth and power, everyone benefits. There is no negative result when a woman succeeds. And that is so crucial for us to wrap our heads and our emotions around because we we need to be leading the way on this we need to get over our stuff and do the work that we need to do so that we can get the money we can change the world we can have the things and I see a lot of people who get to a certain level of success in their business and they're so uncomfortable with being at that level of success, they give it all away. They, they spread themselves too thin. They go overboard in their giving or hiring people or whatever it might be, and it's actually to the detriment of their business growth. I've been through that cycle as well of every time I had a big month in my business, I would spend it all in my community buying yeah. from my audience because I wanted them to feel, feel that experience of success in their businesses and blah, blah, blah. And again, not buying out of pity. I wanted the thing, but I was overspending in that way. And then I didn't have the budget to put into the Facebook ads to get the launch that I was going for the next time around. And so for me, I can see, you know, as I shared, like that goal of having a million dollar year, I can see all the times I was on the tipping point of getting there the thing that stopped me was spending the money on things that weren't going to get me closer. It was spending the money on things that kept me where I was. 
And it wasn't yeah. conscious. It was subconscious. It was unconscious. And it was because it felt unsafe for me to get to that. There were fears that I had. There was worries that I had. There was, you know, who I'll be unrelatable. Who do I think I am? It's not fair. I need to take everyone with me. Um, and so, you know, there's, I'll continue to work on that, but I, my desire to work on that and shift that and get to that million dollar year, then the $5 million year, then the $20 million year is driven by this. I get it at the logical level that when I have more money, I can help more people. When I have more money, it changes the world. I can have that time and capacity to work on these projects that I want to work on. I get it at the logical level. My next step is getting it at the deep emotional, physical level. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you wish someone had told like younger Tash, like earlier Tash, you know, about the, about your path to success? What do you wish you had have known earlier about the path to success? Okay. So there's a really practical and there's a really energetic mindset one. So the practical one is when I first started my business, I was selling um, VIP one-to-one services and uh, about Six months in, I had a $20,000 month selling just one-to-one services. And then the following month or two, one or two months later, I went to a webinar on like, if you're not making money selling courses through passive income, it doesn't count. And so I completely broke my business less than a year in. I, If I had just stayed where I was and had 20K months every month for two years, I would have been able to buy a house straight away. I would have been able to hire a team. I would have been able to scale up to Facebook ads. I like. I wish I could go back and say, they're full of it. What you're doing is working. Stay where you are. Keep doing what you're doing. I really do wish I could do that because then I created a group program. I launched it. I made four and a half grand. The next month I made $800. I, I, I reduced my income for the nine months of building that group program, going into that person's course, unlearning all the things that had worked for me and making myself wrong and all of those sorts of things. Um, And then going out and making this course. And then I was like, I just wish I could go back and to where those, I had those 20K months. That was really fun. I really enjoyed that. That was so easy. I was making $20,000 a month the easy way. And I, I think I'd latched onto that so easily because I felt like that was too easy some mm. subconsciously. And also they, they did those non-consent driven strategies, right? There was two options. There was keep doing what you're doing, but you'll burn out. You're trading time for dollars. You're, you know, all of those, you're leaving money on the table. You're, you, that's not a scalable business model. So you'll, you'll end, eventually suffer and fail if you don't buy this course or buy this course, create passive income, have 50K months and everything will be okay. And actually I bought the course and I broke my business. See yeah. how there wasn't two choices there? I bought the course. I did exactly what they said. I was a grade A student in that course. I was on every call. Even some of them were at like two o'clock in the morning, my time, because it was based in the States. I showed up. I was supportive of other people. I was like the grade A student 
And by their measure, I was on their sales page two years later as someone who I created a course and I made 13 sales in my first launch. They thought I was a success story. Meanwhile, I'm in the corner rocking back and forth because I told David to quit his job and we're going to move to the beach when I had a 20K month thinking, this is my new normal. And now we only brought in 800 bucks this month and we have to live on a credit card. Yeah, yeah. I think they're... They're asking for a a voice bite on having 13 sales of my course in my very first launch as a success story. And I'm rocking in the corner making less money, like a a tenth, less than a tenth of the money that I was making before I did the course. I think this this comes up for a lot of people though. And I know that even um, when I um, interviewed Silvana last week, one of the things that she said she wished knew was not to compare. Like Mm. comparison is the death. Of, yeah. of your, you know of your self-esteem yeah. um you will never compare yes to where you want to yeah. to who you consider your peers yes you, yeah. there will always be a failing that you can pull out even if it's not there you will find yeah. one <laughs> and um, actually that leads me into my energetically energetic slash mindset thing that I could go back and tell myself and that is like you are smart enough and worthy enough to be in the room with the big guns I didn't join masterminds because I felt like I wasn't ready or good enough yet and actually if I just joined them I would have been able to peek behind the curtain and see they were at the same level as me. They were putting on this amazing, like I, there was one person in a mastermind that I wanted to join and her first launch of her course, first launch was over $100,000 in sales. And so I was like, my first launch was $4,500 in sales. Like I'm not ready to be in a mastermind with her. And when I saw she joined, that was it. I was like, I'm definitely not joining that. And um, someone who, one of my friends who did join that mastermind, came to me two years later and said, I finally found out that first launch she made $100,000 in sales. She spent $155,000 in Facebook ads. She was a millionaire before she did, she started selling courses. So here I was going, well, she made $100,000 in sales. I'm not at her level. I made more profit than her with my four and a half grand. Yeah. Because totally. it was all profit, right? So, you know, that, that feeling of comparison you're comparing your behind the scenes messiness, right? You're comparing your, like, I've got my beautiful backdrop here, right? People are comparing their mess. I've got a messy office right now. They see everything, right? You see everything in your own business. In someone else's business, you see the shiny backdrop. Yeah. And so, um, like, that comparison made me feel like now it didn't make me feel like I couldn't be successful right it was a big driver for me of like setting bigger goals and going for bigger things I actually found that like you know looking at other people's success in their businesses and their business models and everything like that it really drove me internally to succeed but it stopped me from thinking I was ready to be in the room yes and being in the room would have accelerated my pathway to achieving that success if I had just allowed myself to show up in that space to say, I think I might be ready for this mastermind. I, and the person selling it was always like, oh my gosh, we'd love to have you in the mastermind. Like, yep, you should totally join. And I think I probably did eight or nine sales calls for masterminds that I never joined. And the reason I was excited, I was like, oh my gosh, that would be so amazing to do that one day. The reason why I didn't join was because I didn't believe I was worthy of being in that room. The way that they talked about 
the other people who had joined or the results we were expecting, all that kind of stuff. I was just like, that's not me. I don't have that figured out yet. I'm not ready for that. And, you know, sometimes you need to be in a room that you're not quite ready for to see they are actually your peers. Mm. These are your peers. We put other people on pedestals and say, oh, you're there, they're in front of me. They're in front of me. People do, will, would do it to you, Laura, right? Like, oh, Laura's so far ahead of me. She's so in front of me, so far of me. And then they come to a conference or they come to an event and they come and they meet you and they realize you're a human. You haven't got everything figured out. You, you know, you're still working things out, but we're all learning along the way. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh, okay, right? And that's why I say go to conferences, go and meet people, join the mastermind before you feel like you're ready, join the course, sign up for the mentoring, whatever it is, because the if you feel like you're not ready for it, the being in the room will help you to see actually like either yes, you're ready or you're going to get ready way faster because you're here now. And so, you know, that's, I wish I could go back and tell myself, you know, make the leap, make the stretch and put yourself in the seven figure mastermind before you've, you know, the, I'm, I'm almost at seven figures before you're even like close to seven figures. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, there was one where it was like, we're going to have a million dollar year, like year, the year after you do the mastermind, it's setting up for the million dollar year. But in the setup for the million dollar year, you probably have a half million dollar year. And at that point in time, I think I'd made 200,000 and I wanted to have a half million dollar year, but I was like, oh, all the people in the room have probably had a $400,000 year. And I haven't had one of those yet, right? Like just putting these barriers between me and being allowed to be in the room. So, you know, if I, if I could sum it up, it's just, just be in the room. You're allowed to be in the room. Go on, off you go, (laughs) stretch yourself. Go on, Tash, get in there. People, People will, people will be really happy that you're there and you will learn so much and you'll grow so much faster by just being in that room. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's why I've chosen these questions as the ones that I'm asking anyone that I have as a special guest. Yeah. It's because often what we consider as someone being ridiculously successful, they might not even see themselves as successful. And yeah. even if they do, I can guarantee you, they will be able to tell you everything that means that they're not where they want to be yet. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when I ask people what they're doing wrong in their business or what needs fixing in their business, they'll give me a list of 400 things. When I ask people what they're doing right in their business, they'll say three things. Three things. Like we find it so much easier to criticize ourselves than we do to celebrate ourselves for sure. Okay. So I've just got a really quick last question. And that is what's next for you, Tash? <gasps> Well, I'm in the midst of launching my coloring book and my progress art course. I'll be really focused on um, that part of my business. We are um, putting in some dates for conference next year. I host the Heart Center Business Conference. And, you know, as I said, like my big learning trajectory is getting back into remembering how easy business can be, Um, you know, relying on my team a little more. And my word for the year is rhythm, really finding my rhythm. I had eight months away from my business, recovering from surgery and, you know, really tough times in the midst of a pandemic and now with floods and, you know, all those things. So it's been a really tough few years. And the whole time 
I've felt like, oh, I've got it easy. It's okay. I've got it easy. No, everything's okay. Like I literally like didn't let my aunt drive me home from having a surgery under local anesthetic, which was highly traumatic because I didn't want her to have to wait for an hour. And I was like, it's fine. I'll just catch an Uber. So I caught an Uber home like 20 minutes after surgery, right? Like (laughs) I, I cannot fathom how tough on myself I have been for the last two to three years in this, like we couldn't move back to Australia, Munchkin got like we've had some tough stuff and so choosing the word rhythm for this year it's made it very easy for me to focus on you know like it's not about the big leaps the big for this year I just need to get back into my rhythm my rhythm has been disrupted over and over and over again we tried to move here in 2017 we just moved here with Munchkin, our dog, in January this year. Mm-hmm. Like, five, it's taken us five years. It's been five years of tumultuous moving countries, you know, like trying to create some kind of routine and rhythm and growth and momentum. And the whole time I've been kind of um, not anxious, with angry with myself, but like frustrated that it hasn't happened or feeling that sense of like, come on, you can do oh, this. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I do. And I think everyone can understand that because we we have these expectations of ourselves that we should be able to accomplish something. Yes. And I know that for yeah. me personally as a mum with multiple children and full-time study, for some reason I didn't think that that might complicate the timetable <laughs> I had made for myself about what I was going to get done for me yeah 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 and I see you I see the use of the world and the Jodie's you know who I'm talking about and yeah all that those people right and I see myself reflected so beautifully and I say to those people a to-do list of three things is more powerful than a to-do list of 40 and they're like yeah yeah I totally get that but I'm an overachiever so I'll have the to-do list of 40 you know what I mean like we constantly have this like yeah I would say it to a friend like that I totally accept that that's the standard for other people but I'm an overachiever so I'm just going to do it this way I'm an overachiever so I'm just going to push myself a bit harder I you know we have this like belief that we are capable of more so therefore we should do more I even Um, teach it with my clients like I tell my clients be really easy on yourself don't like when we're making time frames for projects and stuff I'm like how much honest time do you have just for you take into account kids you know and we make a timetable that suits. And then here I am, not following my own advice, <laughs> trying to fit 29 hours into a 24-hour day. <laughs> yeah. And there's a beautiful analogy. I don't know where it's from. I just read it on some random meme that had no attribution. And it said, if a jet engine operates at full capacity for an extended period of time, it burns out and it has 10% of the lifespan, 10%, right? So if you run a jet engine at full capacity, it will last, let's say, 10 years instead of 100 years. And we think that we can run at full capacity all of the time, yeah. right? Like we, ha- we, we are the jet engine. We need a cruising speed. And it was in, re- I read that meme like six months ago and I was like, that is, that, I need to remember that. I need to tell myself that every day. Cruising speed. There are times where you're going to push it harder Right, we're going to get through this storm. We're going to go at full pace. And there are times where the storm is ahead of us. We're going to slow down. 
mm-hmm. right? It's not always power through because in times like this, pandemic, homeschooling, I don't have kids, but I know that, that lots of people have done that, um, lockdowns, tumultuous cycles, you know, like all of the things are going, natural disaster. Like when, when you're in that space, our natural default is to go at full throttle to try and get through it. But we can't sustain that over a long period of time. We have been in a pandemic for over two years now. And so many people are starting to see this. Their default response to all of the turmoil has been to try and go at full throttle through it. And it's been unsustainable. Yeah, because we're still waiting for when it all finishes so we can breathe. But it's not going to finish anytime. It's never going to finish. It is never going to finish. There will always be something. There will always be health stuff or political strife or men in power. There will like, <laughs> like it's all, there's always going to be something. So we need to learn to be better at finding our cruising speed. And when things get hard, choose to slow down instead of race through it. And so, yeah, that's what's ahead for me is learning that, getting into a rhythm, giving myself lots of space, and hopefully I'll have my million-dollar year sometime soon. And whenever it happens, it happens. Um, But I know for now being gentle on myself and giving myself space to find that rhythm in the midst of all of this chaos is critical. And, oh, I'll default to trying to race through it. I know I will. That's cool. But I can catch myself sooner and sooner and um, get back to cruising speed faster and faster. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Tash. I've really enjoyed it. And I'm sure our listeners will be able to um, really feel on so many things that you've brought up today. So thank Mm -hmm. you for sharing so much of your knowledge and experience with us and for making those mistakes so that we don't have to. Or if, even if you do, like, I also want to say it's okay if you still make the mistake, right? Tash told me I was going to do this and then I did it. But the beautiful thing is then you can know you're in good company because we've done it together. <laughs> so exactly. I make mistakes so you don't have to. But even if you do make them, you're in good company. <laughs> we can laugh about it as we sip our cocktails on Necker Island with Dickie B and, like, just be like, remember that? time that you said don't jump into a group program too soon like hang out in the good stuff and I was like yeah 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 Tash and then I made a group program remember that (laughs) you know we can have those conversations and those chats then and we'll laugh about it it'll be fine yeah yeah beautiful well thank you thank you that you have your million dollar year as soon as you can (laughs) yeah love it thank you so much and I love this hashtag human podcast